So as Nathan said, uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, 15 through 22. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, 15 through 22. And uh, today, if I can just have one takeaway for the class... It's really that we can just have a better understanding of what it means uh, to have Christ as our Lord and what it means for Christ to be the Lord of our lives. Uh, So that's kind of the takeaway I want to get at. And as I was preparing uh, this, um, I was trying to think of an opening illustration that would really kind of uh, set the stage. And... Actually, yesterday, in the middle of doing some Hebrew translation, I was watching the show Survivor Man. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you have seen it. It's kind of like the Bear Grylls of a man kind of simulates if you were stranded in the wilderness and left with basically nothing, how you'd survive. And so for this episode of Survivor Man, he uh, had a crew who took him out into the middle of the sea Uh, I think this was near kind of the Caribbean, and they had an emergency life raft, one of those inflatables, and they just stuck them on it uh, for seven days and basically said, survive. Uh, And it's really interesting because in the middle of these seven days, he actually hits kind of a freak storm in the middle of the night, and it's getting so dangerous that, you know, they think that he could likely just get swallowed up by the storm in the middle of the night. And as a result, his crew, who is several miles off, uh, has to come in and rescue him. And it's in the middle of the night. And the ship is, you know, going through basically the pitch black, the pouring rain. You can barely see. And the only thing that led them to the rescue of this guy was he had a beacon that was a flashing beacon that produced this huge, basically bright light. And that's what eventually led to his rescue, uh, which is just crazy that he was kind of simulating that, uh, and then it really happened. Um, But what this made me think of is that when Christ is not our Lord, we are like that man on that life raft, stranded in the middle of this pitch black storm, lost in the darkness, just kind of wandering without hope of a rescue. But what Christ as our Lord does for us is it provides that light, provides that ability for rescue. And without Christ as our Lord, like I said before, we're just kind of wandering. uh, Without purpose, without hope of rescue, uh, just lost. And so with that in mind, let's read Ephesians 1, 15 through 22. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up. And if not, I just put it on there. Uh, for you. So, uh, would someone like to read that for us? For yeah. This, <coughs> you want to do that? Okay. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his in, incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly reigns, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thank you. Uh, with that, let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this morning where we can uh, come and worship you. We thank you for the word that you have revealed to us. And uh, Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to uh, die for our sins. And uh, we thank you for raising him from the dead, defeating death, and uh, placing him at your right hand, uh, making him uh, the Lord over all things. In your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, as we start, on your sheets I, I wrote a historical background. And when we look at the book of Ephesians, it's helpful to kind of uh, understand the, the setting of, of this. And so, if you picture yourself in the middle of the Roman Empire, and keep in mind the Roman Empire during this time is basically king. They rule your life. It's the most powerful empire in the entire world. Uh, and in this city of Ephesus, uh, which is like most cities uh, in Rome, people daily are making their way to the temples. They have temples spread out all around the city, and there's actually several kind of cults that are in this city of Ephesus. One is called the Imperial Cult, and the Imperial Cult is where people would basically worship the emperor. So whether it's Julius Caesar or Augustus or whoever's reigning at the time, they would make statues of him, they would have paintings of him, they would have temples for him, and they would go in there, offer sacrifice, burn incense, uh, sing songs to him, and worship him. Also, uh, specifically in the city of Ephesus, uh, to which Paul is writing during this time, the god that they worshiped the most was actually a goddess called Artemis. And throughout the entire uh, the city, they made their money off of selling statues of Artemis. They also had created this grand temple of Artemis that was considered one of the seven wonders of the world at the time because of how basically great and majestic it was. And Artemis is also known because if you've heard of you know, the ancient Spartans, before they would go to battle, they would actually sacrifice to Artemis. So Artemis is this huge deal and the marketplace was just crawling with silversmiths who would make these statutes or you know silver plates or you know whatever that would have the inscription of Artemis on it. And we can get a better understanding of this if you flip uh, your Bibles over to Acts chapter 19, uh, starting with verse 23. And if someone wants to read that, Acts uh, chapter 19, verse 23 through 27. About that time, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. 
for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. Yeah. So, right there, um, I mean, this is describing exactly what uh, Paul was dealing with. He was going around all of Asia preaching the Lordship of Christ, and huge numbers of people were throwing aside the gods that they had previously been worshiping and basically singularly devoting themselves to Jesus Christ. And when he comes to Ephesus, this is seriously concerning all of the businessmen in Ephesus because they make their income off of the goddess Artemis. They make their income off of selling shrines and statues of Artemis. And so when Paul comes preaching Christ, it threatens their way of life. Because when we think about the Lordship of Christ, it should dramatically change the way we live our lives. And if it doesn't, then he's not the Lord of our life. So how do we know that Jesus is Lord, though, uh, when we look at Ephesians? Well, I think there's, there's two ways. And I'm not sure if there's any uh, Lord of the Rings fans in here, but uh, I've actually been going back through and reading The Hobbit, and uh, one of the riddles that this creature Gollum uh, asks is actually very appropriate for this discussion. So I'll read the riddle, and if any of you know it or can guess it, feel free. So this is the riddle. This thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, and flowers. Gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays kings, ruins towns, and beats the high mountain ground, or beats the high mountain down. What is the answer? Does anybody know? Is it the wind? No, not the wind. Close though. That's one of them. That's one of the riddles. Isn't it time? Time. Time, yeah. Yeah, the answer is time. And as I was reading this, um, I thought it was, it was very appropriate because one of, I mean, basically what this is getting is that time conquers all. And the reason that time conquers all of these great powers, whether it's high mountains or kings or whatever it is, is because we all inevitably face death. Death is one of the greatest powers that basically rules our way of life. Um, the circle of life as we, as we hear, or being a part of the food chain. It's our, our lives are full of life and death. And death just so happens to be uh, one of the greatest powers. And I don't mean to be grim by focusing on death, but I think it's very appropriate when we think about why Christ is Lord uh, to see the importance of his power over death. Uh, but what, what are some reasons why we don't like talking about death? 
It's uncertain. Yeah. Kind of can take the pep out of your step. You know? <laughs> yeah. Takes the pep out of your step. You don't want to think about it. Yeah. It's, in, it's in inevitable. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's inevitable. It's often preceded by suffering. Yeah, preceded by suffering. Well, I, you know, I'm, I don't mean talking about death. I know what's up ahead. Yeah. I, I, this death, well, time will also consume. Yeah. You worry about the ones you're leaving. Yeah. I'm, I just don't worry about it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's great. And what I'm getting at, though, is without Christ as our Lord, we have no hope in death. Because death is the greatest power that we know. However, what Christ has proven, and as we see in this passage, is that God can do what we cannot. And that is conquer death. And one of the main ways that we know that Christ is Lord in this, in this passage is by his resurrection, because he defeated death. And just like you said, Mike, that's why we don't have to worry about death, because we know what lies ahead. And so if you look at verse 19 uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, it says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. You see, Jesus' body did not see corruption. God raised Jesus to a new and glorious and immortal state. This is the hope that we have in Christ. This is the hope that we have when we face death, that Jesus is Lord. And the testament to his lordship is that he not only defeated sin and death, but he rose again from the dead, defeating the two powers, sin and death, that ruled over our lives. And so one of the ways that we know that Christ is Lord in our life is that he has defeated sin and death. He has risen from the dead, and now God has placed him at the right hand of his throne, which leads us to the next part of another reason that we know that Christ is Lord is because of his throne. When we read Ephesians uh, actually, I'll have someone read it. Uh, Ephesians uh, 20 through 23. Chapter 1. 20 through 23. Anybody mind reading that? Yeah. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Yeah. Um, and I love that passage because I think that's, that's one of, I think, just the key verses of Christ's Lordship that shows his power. Um, but right now, before we focus more on Christ, I want to think about what are some authorities that we have in our life, not excluding, excluding God. What are different authorities that we face? Obama. <laughs> Obama? <laughs> yep. 
her parents? Parents, yeah. What else? Teachers. Teachers, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm much of an authority, but <laughs> other teachers, Nathan. The administration. Administration. <laughs> the bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah. The man. <laughs> the man. Just put admin. Whoever those they people are. are that Whoever they are. Say no all the time. Like, how about uh, like physicality, like laws of physics, like yeah. you know, time, gravity, aging, health. Physics. The church. Church. Other authorities that influence or affect our life. Well, people don't like to talk about this, but the Bible does talk about authorities, powers, and the meanings of spiritual forces. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Spiritual forces. What else? They don't always have to be people either. Government, generally. Government, yeah. The big one. The Bible. The Bible, yeah. I'll put <coughs> next to that truth. That's an authority. How about like sort of culture, like, like being politically correct or yeah. that would be like <clears throat> similar to the Bible in that first psalm, being right or being tolerant or whatever, that's a massive authority. Yeah. Another one is money. It's definitely authority. Hmm. Any other ones? No. Not big up. What was that? Doctors. Doctors. Yeah. Yeah, and look at that and you think we're free. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, and this is kind of why I wanted to kind of jumpstart our brains and kind of think about what authorities are affecting our life. Because believe it or not, uh, even with asserting that Christ is the Lord above all these things, we all face these different authorities in every sphere of our life. And oftentimes it can be hard to keep Christ above all of these. We often are, this might actually be the biggest one, self. We uh, are pretty good at making ourselves the Lord of our life and we like controlling our life. We like to think that we can control all aspects. And I learned a valuable lesson when I was a kid about that I don't control everything just because I want it to happen. Uh, it was in the middle of the summer and my mom was having us clean out the garage, which really meant that me and my brother were playing with whatever was getting dumped out of the garage. And one thing that was dumped out was a sled. And remember, it's the middle of the summer in July, and my little brother, who's probably six at the time, is trying to scoot down the driveway and the sled, of course, going nowhere because laws of friction, laws of physics. Um, and I said, Matthew, 
get out, get out of there. I was like, really, if you want to go down there, you just have to run and jump. And so I took off running and jumped on the sled. And of course, the sled skids maybe an inch. And I go flying off. And I actually skin or take off all the skin on my knuckles. And my parents are watching and just start cracking up laughing. And um, <laughs> But that was a good reminder that while I think that I can control things, there are things that are above my power. Um, but when we think about this, um, on a more serious note, we try to control every aspect of our life down to the T. Every morning when we wake up, most of the time our first thoughts are what I have to do today. Or, you know, I want to be in charge of what I do. I want to be in charge of how people treat me. I want to be in charge of what I eat, how I talk, how I dress, how I spend my money, how I spend my time. I mean, you, you name it. That is essentially the way we act as, as the Lord of our lives. And oftentimes, especially as Americans, we try to rebel against any other authority that tries to assert itself other than ourselves, um, which leaves very little room uh, for Christ which I put a quote on your, uh, your sheets by A.W. Tozer. Um, and the quote says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is often the most important thing about us. What does that mean? Thoughts? I think that's a self regulation. What you think? What place God takes in your life? Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts or additions to that? It's almost like one of those, you know, probably if in business you, or whatever, you take personality tests and, you know, are you a D or a C or a, you know, those five-letter ones and four-letter ones, but this almost, if you can find this out about somebody, then you know a lot about them. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's interesting. That's, yeah. It's interesting to ask yourself that. I know, I know, because when we think about that, I mean, and we truly ask ourselves honestly, what, what comes into our minds when we think about God? Because I promise you that what you think about God will dramatically change the way you live your life. If you think very much of God, it will show in how you live your life. If you think very little of God, that will also show how you live your life. And I think one of the most important things of when we think about the Lordship of Christ is, I mean, it's, it's truth, it's fact that Christ is the Lord over all things. There's nothing that can change that. That's, that's truth. But the thing is, oftentimes, we live neglecting that truth. Or we live thinking very little of that truth. 
And when we think very little of that truth, we live very little like that truth is real. And we allow very little of that truth to affect us and change us and to mold our hearts uh, to walk with God. Um, So with that in mind, and with knowing that Christ is Lord, how do we respond to that? Well, when we look at Ephesians uh, 1, 15 through 22, Paul actually gives us three ways we can put our hope in Christ. And three ways that that hope of his lordship can affect and speak into our lives. So first, um, there's the hope of our calling. And when we look at uh, the beginning of this, uh, I think it starts... Yeah, chapter, verse 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revel- revelation in the knowledge of him, having your eyes and hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's the first part. And when we think about our hope... Paul actually provide some really interesting sequential thoughts about hope. And is it beginning with two ends? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Spelling's not a forte. So the beginning of our hope is our call. And what I mean by call is that um, when we look just a couple verses uh, back at the very beginning of Ephesians, uh, in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. <coughs> what we can see here is that before the foundations of the world were even created, he knew us by name. And the prophet uh, Jeremiah speaks about that, that God knew him before he was in the womb. And this is the beginning of our hope, that even before we've had time to screw things up and to mess things up, God has called us to himself. And there's a lot of hope in that. That God even knowing all of the pain and suffering that would be caused through our sinfulness and our rebellion against him, he gave us this hope of calling us to himself. And when we think about this, um, I think a, a good illustration of this is when we think about the Israelites, right before they were to enter the land of Canaan, or Canaan, um, if you remember the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, through the, across the Red Sea into the wilderness, they get all the way to the edge of the promised land, but not yet into it. And Moses dies, and Joshua takes over. 
and he leads some spies to go check out the land. And the spies come back, and this is what they say. The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. I love this verse because God has brought them so far. They get to the edge of the promised land. They send out their spies. They say, yes, this land is good. It has milk and honey. It will flourish, and the land is great. But the problem is, are there's these giant mighty men. These people, these nations are great. And they feared them. And as it says, they viewed themselves like grasshoppers. And as a result, the people of those lands viewed them as grasshoppers. And the problem is here that they are defining themselves by who they are, rather than who their God is. And we often do this in our life. We define ourselves by who we are, rather than who our God is. And when we look to the hope of Christ's Lordship, and the hope of our calling, the hope that we have in our calling is that we are defined not by who we make ourselves out to be, but we are defined by who God has called us to be, by who our God is, and how He is the Lord of our lives. So that is the beginning of our hope. Now, if that's the beginning, then what is the end of our hope? Or what is the, what is the future hope that is there? Well, if we look to verse, um, where was I? Yeah. Um, 18, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you're called. This is the beginning. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is the future hope. The riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. This is interesting. It doesn't say that it's not talking about our inheritance. It's talking about God's glorious inheritance in the saints. God's inheritance is the saints. God's inheritance is us. Sanctifying us into holy saints, into his people. That is what he is going to inherit in the future or the end. So our future hope is that we are God's inheritance. And do you think God's going to let go of what is rightfully his to inherit? There is no way that he's going to let go of his inheritance. And that is extremely encouraging because we know that our life is lived between these lines. Between, you know, before the foundations of the world and to that future inheritance. And a lot of times we lose sight of both of these hopes. We forget that we have been called. We forget where we're going and the hope that is there in the Lordship of God. And there's a story that I think really explains this well. In the my it was actually my brother. Uh, he went to church 
uh, with a guy who was in the Vietnam War, and he told a story of one day he was in a, a, a small uh, just band of, of soldiers, five or six guys. Uh, they were, I can't remember what, what the objective was, but they were out walking in the jungle. And they were several days, I think it was about a 10-day hike between them and their base camp from which they were hiking away from. And in the middle of this, all of a sudden, these, uh, the Vietnam soldiers, uh, the enemy was coming and surrounding them. They couldn't hide, and as a result, they had a choice. They could either surrender themselves over to the enemy, or they could try and run back to base camp, which is about a 10-day hike. And that's what they chose to do. Now, the enemy finally had spotted them, and so they were basically right on their tail and chasing them back. And so after one or two days of just continually hiking nonstop, they didn't break for any sleep, they're getting so weary and their heads are starting to bob because they're so tired. And as a result, the soldiers take off their helmets, toss them to the side, and just keep going. After another couple days of just constant pursuit and constant running, they're just getting exhausted. Their legs are heavy. Just like after a long run, your legs start to feel like just lead. And so they take off their backpacks. They throw all their supplies down. They just have to make this trip. They just have to make this trip. That's what they're telling themselves. After another few days of no sleep and little rest, they're still going. And they still keep on going. They take off their boots because their legs are just too heavy. Finally, after 10 days, they finally get into camp. And he, he laughed at this part because he said, most of the guys were nothing but their underwear and a pistol because of how weary they were. They threw off everything else that hindered them from making that long trip back. And the reason I use this as an illustration is because, as I said, we're between these lines. We are headed in this direction to this future hope but oftentimes in this life, just as we talked about all of those authorities that constantly cloud and hinder us, there are things that hinder us in reaching and running towards our goal of Christ. And what we have to do when these things hinder us is toss them off to the side and see that it is weight that is holding us back from what God has in store for us. If we are to live under the Lordship of Christ, we have to realize that He is the end goal. He is most important. And as a result, there are things in our lives that may even be good things. But we realize these good things hinder us from knowing the Lord. Or these things hinder us from running after the Lord with a fuller passion. I mean, I realized in college that I wasted a ton of time playing video games. That was just something me and my roommates loved to do. But I realized that hindered me from better running and pursuing after the Lord. I started spending my time reading. I started spending my t that extra free time praying. I started using that extra spend time reading my Bible. And I think what we have to see is I'm not saying that it's bad to leisure. We should all take time and relax and leisure. We have to see that there are choices that we have to make in life. And oftentimes we have to realize and prioritize our life to see what is most important. Is it most important 
that I excel in my job to the fullest capability, or is it most important that I am being a godly husband, or a godly wife, or a godly father, or a godly mother, or whatever it may be. Now, we've looked and we've seen the beginning of our hope, our future hope. However, the million dollar question is, how do we get from there to there? That is the hardest thing. Um, but Paul does not leave us uh, without an answer. He says in verse, uh, I'll just start with verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us believe, towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand. And what we see here is that we have the beginning, the future, and the means to that hope. And the means to that hope is exactly that in verse 19. It is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul desires that believers will know the great power of Christ, that it is an immeasurable greatness. And it is that power that has the ability to get us from the beginning to the future. It is the power of the gospel that has the ability to take wretched sinners like myself and work in my life in mighty ways. He knows us better than anyone else, inside and out. He knows our flaws. He knows what we're good at. He knows what we're bad at. But he loves us so much that he has not only claimed us as his own, but he died and rose again and sent us his Holy Spirit so that he could powerfully transform us into his children. I know we can all, when we look at our own life and see how the gospel has worked, see how God has sanctified us, see the sin that God has ripped out from our heart, and see the new hope that he's put in there, and see the new godly desires that he's put in there. I mean, by the grace of God, I can love God. By the grace of God, I can want God. Because before, in my sinfulness, I did not want God. I wanted only to please myself. But that is the power of the gospel, to transform our lives. This is the power that we have in Christ's Lordship. And this is the power, though, that we daily forget that we have in our life. How many days do we live with the power of the gospel transforming our lives in mighty ways? And that's why I brought up that quote by A.W. Tozer of oftentimes the most important thing about us is the way we think about God. Because when we think of Christ as our Lord, we allow his gospel to work in mighty ways in our life. Michael? Yeah. <coughs> okay, so I'm just curious, like, <clears throat> so I, I agree we're like betwixt and between. And... And if I look backward and see, like, God has done these powerful things, but if I'm wrestling with sin or I'm in the middle of a problem or I'm in the middle of something I can't figure out, how, how does that power get 
activated, experienced, or, or how do you um, sort of pierce through that darkness in your own life, or, or you go through a hard season or something? I'm, I'm curious about y'all's opinion about how that's, how you've seen that work, or maybe not work. But, but I mean, there's the answer, I'm trying to get really like down to brass tacks yeah. if you're going through something, or if you just feel like I'm not good enough, or I just can't see that power right now in my life. That's my question. I guess that's related to what I had in mind. I can think of two passages in there. There's more than that. Two passages that speak about hope in our lives. One of them was when, when uh, Paul was before Agrippa. Yeah. And he says, I stand on trial here because of the hope that is in me about the promises that God made to our fathers. So there's the hope. <coughs> but the hope demands, I think, action on our part. The other part that I'm thinking of is the passage that talks about the grace that is before us. Yeah throwing away everything that hinders us mm -hmm. and everything that besets you for the price that is up ahead. And again, God is the one that is working in us. But we have a response to make to God's work in us. Yeah. That is, really we have to be active in that. I know that God's will will be done, but that I have to work towards that will. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I was thinking about. You, you, you can be, you can accept Christ, and it's easy in your daily doings to fall into old habits or simply just be lazy or not feel like dealing with the problem. And you know, you know, if you're praying or studying, that you're going to have to deal with this problem because that's what's next on God's agenda for you. And so, and I'm speaking personally, I have, you know, been like, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to do my study. I'm not going to join a study this semester or whatever. And it, 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 you, you can, I can feel myself sliding. Yeah. And then it has, God's there. It has to be me that says, okay, I don't feel like dealing with this. I don't feel like having a relationship with God right now, but I'm just going to do it because I know that six months from now or two months from now I'll, this will be I'll want it again but it, but there's times when you're just like I don't like when you have a friend that knows knows what's best for you and you're like no get out of my business I mean I'm not the only person that feels that way sometimes just like I don't want you in my business this I got this like my kids I got this mom you know it's like no okay yeah. he's 19 yeah he's got it all but um I guess that we're like that 19-year-old, you know. I got this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you just gotta trust and just do it, and then he'll, you'll see him again. You now you'll see God again. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else? Well, I think it, uh, it's not always good to look back, but sometimes when they're in the middle of the situation, if you look back and see how God had been faithful and has carried you through, that gives you the courage and the hope to persevere in the situation you're in now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking about the probably the biggest thing that Carrie and I went through marriage-wise um, was just a period of unemployment, and uh, we had to live in someone else's house and all that. And and I look at that act of God's power and deliverance, and and 
it didn't have, uh, there, I, guess, I guess there's sometimes where you demonstrate your hope by action. And I guess the, we were so, like, we could, we could not do any more action. Like, like we, I couldn't get a job, and I just, just couldn't, and, and, and I just wasn't even, didn't even have a great, actually our devotional life was better in that time because it's like God, we're just so desperate. You know, it's not so much like, oh, I need to read my Bible today. It was like, God, we're just out of answers, and we prayed together more. And, but what I'm saying is, is it, it, it seems like the only action I could muster because I was so depressed was just not to give God the finger and just say, forget it all. I'm going to go live my life and forget this whole Christian thing. It's like all I could do was, was just like rest and like not do anything stupid. You know, just like I'm just going to float in space and like... I, I needed grace just to do that and not do something aggressive or, you know what I mean? And so it's almost like there's this time where hope allows you just to hang on because it's God's work of deliverance. And it's like, well, we do believe he's faithful. I, mean, I don't know if you want to speak. I, I don't know if I'm talking about that in an articulate way because we just went through it like a year and a half ago. So, um. Well, I think there are components of waiting where we just waited for the Lord. I don't think that's talked enough about in Christian circles, waiting on the Lord. He commands us over and over in Scripture to wait on Him. And we had no choice but to wait on Him. Um, and then the other thing, we did still open our Bible. Like, we still chose to read and chose to call on Him, even though we didn't see the answers right then. And I remember feeling, and I have to say, it had to have been, it's the first time in my life where I really felt like I knew what it was to eat spiritual bread and not physical by reading my Bible. The study I was in was reading through the Bible in eight months. And when you were literally taking in that much word daily, it it filled me with faith that I didn't have, I didn't have to muster, because it was the Lord breathing into me. So I think that there was a component of waiting, but there was a component of we still were in the Word. But He was drawing us to His Word. I really feel like He was, like He said, our spiritual life as a couple was stronger than it's ever been. But he was calling us to his word. We were desperate to be with him. I think you read your Bible a lot more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is this is hard because um, there's kind of two ends that we tend to go to, and one is that we either abuse grace. And we say, well, God is faithful. He's going to forgive me. So I don't really need to pursue or follow after him because he'll forgive me. And in the end, it'll be all good. Or on the other end, it's I have to follow everything to the T so that I can earn God's favor. I will prove that I'm worthy. And our life is constantly going back between these two. However, scripturally, when we look at kind of what it means to be in a relationship with God, what it means to follow faithfully with God, it always, and this is something that 
I always talk about with Lacey and she probably gets tired of hearing this, but um, God's gracious initiation. God always initiates with grace. When we look at any story in the Bible, we can see that no matter who God is dealing with, he always initiates with grace. When we see Adam and Eve in the garden, we see before they had any time to mess up anything, God had given them dominion over the world. He had given them each other. He had given them a relationship with the Father. He walked with them in the garden. He gave them the tree of life. This is all grace. They didn't have any time to earn anything. But what they were required to do is to respond in faith. And how are they to respond in faith? Well, to be fruitful and multiply, and also not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if we look at any story in the Bible, it's the same. God initiates with grace, and he requires a faithful response. Any story you want to look at, whether it's Abraham, Abraham was living in Ur, and his parents were likely worshiping other gods, so it was just kind of the culture of the society that he was living in. And out of nowhere, God appears to Abraham and says, go from the land of Ur. And then in chapter 12, 1 through 3, he talks about how he will bless him and make him into a great nation. He will bless those who bless him, and he will curse those who curse him. <coughs> and we see God initiates in grace. And how is Abraham to respond in faith? Go and be blameless. So... I think when we, we really think about this, when we're in those pits of our life dealing with sin, we have to see that God has given us grace, even when we may not see it. And actually, it's been <coughs> incredible. I'm in a, a Hebrew class right now, and we've been translating the book of Jonah. And what's, what's really cool to see in Jonah is, as we know in the story of Jonah, God calls Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, to call them to repent from their sin. However, as we know, Jonah disobeys God. He runs from God. He doesn't want to do that. He says, the Ninevites, they're, they're heathens. They're not worthy of your grace, of, of you. And so he runs, gets on a ship to flee to Tarshish, and they throw him overboard, and a whale swallows him. But what we get out of the story of Jonah is that as many ways as we have of evading God, God has more ways of captivating us. And that is something that I will take with the rest of my life. Because we know that so many times God has initiated grace in our life. And while we should respond in faith, we have actually responded in sin or disobedience. But the beauty of it is that even when we respond in sin or disobedience, God has a way of putting more grace in our life. One of my favorite verses is in Romans, it talks about how God's kindness leads us to repentance. And that is so true. What has melted my heart of stone, my heart of sin, has been God's kindness in my life. His constant time and time again of faithfulness to me. That is what has melted my heart. And that's what eventually leads me back to respond in faith. 
But I think when we're, we're in those pits of our life, when we're struggling in our sin, we have to see that God has given us His grace. And His grace is sufficient to cover the multitude of our sin. And even though we will likely evade His grace time and time again, God will time and time again bring us back to Him. And that's the gospel. That is the Lordship of Christ. Even against our strongest fight to rebel against God, He calls us back to Himself. We have to remember one thing. Ask ourselves a question. Every time we think that way, we should think that way. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? Yeah. There's a danger. Yeah, there is a real danger in that that abuse of grace. Yeah. Any other thoughts before we close? Alright. Um, I'm just going to do a closing prayer and the prayer is actually at the bottom of your page Um, but if you will will bow your heads with me oh God I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace I am ashamed of my lack of desire oh God the triune God I want to want thee I long to be filled with longing I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from the misty lowland where I have wandered so long. Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, he's also one of the interns.